Before the pandemic, it was increasingly clear that university campuses in major metro areas supercharged the so-called network effects of higher education. With employers, culture, and just their overall density, cities were enjoying a big advantage in recruiting students and helping launch them into careers. As recently as 2019, more than half of the nation's college students attended a campus in metro areas with more than 1 million people. Of course, at the beginning of the pandemic, whether that trend would remain seemed, to put it mildly, uncertain. On the latest episode of the Future U Campus Tour, my co-host Michael Horn and our guest co-host Ami Eubanks-Davis of Raven traveled to a city that has long been among one of the hottest with new college graduates, Atlanta. There at Georgia Tech, they sat down with the president of Tech, Angel Cabrera, as well as the president of nearby Emory University, Greg Fenvis. As the two presidents and a subsequent panel from Georgia Tech and Emory dug into the conversations around student wellness, research and development, the importance of location in the Atlanta metro area stood out as a common denominator for this episode of Future You. This episode is part of the Future You Campus Tour, which is made possible thanks to the exclusive support of Salesforce.org. Subscribe to Future You wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at the handle Future You Podcast. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a five-star rating so others can discover the conversations we're having about higher education. Unfortunately, I couldn't be in Atlanta for the latest stop on the Future U campus tour because of an untimely COVID diagnosis. So Michael Horn was joined by a guest co-host, Ami Eubanks-Davis of Raven, a nonprofit that helps low-income students transition from college to career. Michael and Ami first sat down with Angel Cabrera and Greg Fenviz, the presidents of Georgia Tech and Emory University. Angel has been president of Georgia Tech since 2019. Before that, he was president for seven years at George Mason University in Virginia. He earned his master's and PhD from Georgia Tech. He is also the first native of Spain to serve as president of an American university. Fenvez arrived at Emory a year after Cabrera in 2020. So in many ways, they are both pandemic-era presidents of their institutions. Fenvez was previously president of the University of Texas at Austin from 2015 to 2020. So here's Michael Ami, and the latest Future U campus tour in Atlanta. Welcome to Future U, Angel and Greg. Thank you both for being here. Uh, in our time together, Ami and I want to go deep on three topics. The first being student wellness, then urbanization, and finally research. So I want to ask the first question, which is around student wellness, and in particular around belonging and purpose. We have been through quite a couple years, um, and it would just be great to hear what you're doing first, Greg, at Emory to help make sure that your students feel like they belong and have a purpose on your campus. Well, that's very important for us at Emory and, and our students. And uh, we learned a lot through, through COVID. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things um, I realized is I think we took the on-campus, in-person learning experience for granted because mm. we'd always done it. We're just used to it. It's the way we did things. And when the absence of it uh, showed the importance of it. So as we started bringing all the students back um, you know, in phases in fall of 2020, and then all the students back in the beginning of 2021, we, orient, we had orientation for every student, not just first year orientation. We had second year orientation, 
third year orientation. And for uh, some of the seniors, uh, we had orientation for them to get oriented back to what it meant to be back on campus in, a, uh, in an exciting uh, environment. And uh, through that process, we uh, started thinking more deeply about student wellness. It's hmm. become maybe a little bit of a buzzword now because it's, we're all recognizing the importance of it. Mm -hmm. And so just to be really brief, um, we have conceived this, our, our approach is we want every student on campus, by the time they graduate, to be able to answer two questions for themselves. Uh, the first question is, um, what do I want to be? Hmm. What, what are their plans after they graduate? What kind of jobs, careers do they envision themselves having? And how does their education and how do their campus experiences contribute to that? Every college wants a student to answer the question, um, what do they want to be? Yeah. But there's a second question we want every one of our students to answer, and that is, who do I want to be? Interesting. Who do I want to be as a person? And that is finding, for each student, finding what their values are, mm -hmm. learning from others, mm -hmm. uh, discovering a purpose. Yep. Sometimes they go down one path, find out that's not really who they are. Mm -hmm. But through, the again, the education and the campus experiences. And then some of the programs we're, we're starting to pilot, mm -hmm. um, help students understand who they are as a person. And so by the time they graduate, that they, they have a, a deeper understanding of, of who they are as a person. What they want to be will change over their career. Mm -hmm. Who they want to be should be something that's pretty pretty deep and pretty constant for, for each student. We'll see if we have time. We might come back to like what you're doing on that front. It sounds very um, interesting and innovative. So Angel, I'm gonna add a little bit more to this question. A million students um, in the last couple of years made the decision not to come into higher education, um, even at the BA granting institutions. So I love to hear here at Georgia Tech, what are you all doing around sense of belonging and sense of purpose? And do you think that million young people that made this decision not to pursue a higher ed degree, does that have to do with them feeling like maybe they wouldn't belong or wouldn't find a sense of purpose? Well. Uh these are great and complex questions. I mean, one, one of the things that we've learned, uh, just like uh, Greg was saying, one of the things we've learned during COVID, there, there was this, this idea that the internet, remember when the mm -hmm. internet started, it was gonna be the great equalizer. Mm -hmm. It was gonna provide universal access to education, universal access to, uh, to information. It's gonna give everybody the same opportunity. When we had to send students home in March of 2020, we realized the fallacy of that. It turned out that when you're on campus, in old-fashioned, traditional campuses of the kind we used to criticize before the pandemic, like uh, Georgia Tech, Emory, and so many others, uh, it turns out when you're there, you're sleeping in the same dorm, you have access to the same labs, the same computers, mm -hmm. the same Wi-Fi, you mm -hmm. eat the same food, you develop the same relationships. When we sent students home, we sent them to entirely different realities. And some of our students in, in rural areas of the city where there was very poor, if any, access to the internet, or we sent them to, to uh, poorer neighborhoods in, in, in our very city, where maybe the, there's so much density of human beings in a home that you don't even have a space where you can isolate and separate and take your classes. Mm -hmm. So we discovered, like Greg was saying, that there were aspects of, of, of the campus experience that are, A, they're equalizing. Mm -hmm. They're putting people on the same footing. 
and B are essential uh, for aspects of our education that I agree we used to not value as much as we, as we should. Um, in their aspects of the education of an 18 to a 22 year old, when you go to a college, when you have a residential experience that are just not possible to deliver in any other way. I mean, mm -hmm. there might be substitutes of aspects of it, but not in, in, in other ways. So, so we have learned a ton, but people thought, oh, you've learned how to use technology. We said, well, yes, there's been some, some improvement in, mm -hmm. in how we use technology. But I think we've learned a ton about how important the campus is. Mm -hmm. We have um, a new position in, at Georgia Tech in our administration. It's the Vice President of Student Engagement and Well-Being. That's the official title, Student Engagement and Well-Being. And we, we struggled with how to call that position, and we thought, well, let's, let's use the two outcomes that we expect. We expect students to, to have a sense of, we know that engagement on campus is one of the best predictors of, of performance. Some parents are concerned that if their uh, children engage in too many activities, that's going to <laughs> conflict with uh, academic performance. It turns out that the more engaged you are on campus, uh, the better you tend to do in well-being. And this is a tough one for Georgia Tech. Mm. Our tradition and our history is a tough one. In fact, our, if you talk to a graduate of even as early as the 90s, they don't say I graduated from Georgia Tech. They say I got out. <laughs> and, and there is kind of a, this culture that we've inherited of toughness. You come to Georgia Tech, it's going to be really, really hard. You're going to have to work as you've never worked. And one day you'll be glad you went through it. It's not like we're trying to make uh, Georgia Tech any more rigorous, but, but we have an, an added goal. Not only we want you to be the best you can be in your profession, we want and we hope when you graduate from Georgia Tech, you'll have developed life skills that will help you lead healthy, fulfilling lives. And, and this has to be the place where you, where you practice those, mm -hmm. where, you, where you learn to take care of your body, of your mind, where you develop those practices that carry on with you. So it is the hardest, one of the hardest aspects in our strategic plan because in a way it challenges a sort of a core aspect of our historic DNA, but it's hugely important. I'm curious, online and hybrid, do you think student well-being is a part of that over time? Do you all see your institutions continuing some of that? So I think we've learned about technology. Mm -hmm. um, uh, certainly our, our students have experience, our faculty. If I had taken a poll of Emory faculty in early 2020, how many of them had taught online, there'd be no hands or very few <laughs> hands, and now everybody has right. some experience. And, and there are going to be some, uh, I think, some roles for it. Okay. But... You know, ultimately, I do believe learning is a human experience that cannot be done uh, mediated through technology. Mm -hmm. Now, there's uh, certainly specific skills, being able to see a lecture over again, mm -hmm. to be able to go through different speeds of it. There are lots of advantages to that. Yeah. But it's not going to replace the in-person uh, learning experience, the collective experience of learning, in addition to each individual student uh, learning. That's great. I, well, I have a slightly different perspective on mm -hmm. this for the sake of the podcast. Mm -hmm. that we, uh, <laughs> and this is Georgia Tech. Georgia Tech. <laughs> uh, so, because <clears throat> we do both and we're very proud of, uh -huh. so, so we have a powerful undergraduate experience, mm -hmm. which has all the elements of really a transformative learning experience. We can go back to your initial mm -hmm. question of, of the million uh, mm -hmm. people who are choosing not yeah. to go to college, because I think it's a, 
It's a terrible mistake, by mm -hmm. the way, and I want to make that, that clear. And I tend to hear uh, pundits make the argument that you don't need to go to college. Mm -hmm. And every single one of them has gone to a very nice school. Yes. Every single one of them will make sure their own children go to a very nice university. So when they say you don't need to go to college, it means other people's children don't need to go to college. Mine, of course, do. Yeah. So, so I, I have, I'm, I feel slightly strongly about about that and about because mm -hmm. I, like many people in this room, and many mm -hmm. people, we have had our own lives transformed by higher education. Mm -hmm. I would not be doing what I'm doing, not even close, if I had not had access. So I think that the question and the issue we have to resolve is how to provide more access to higher education, not discard it as, as having lack of value. Now, having said that, mm -hmm. and being a very strong defendant of the super transformative experience that an undergraduate student has when they show up on our campus, we're equally proud of the 16, 17,000 professionals mm -hmm. who are currently earning their masters from Georgia Tech 100% online. Wow. And there's no contradiction mm -hmm. in, in those two statements because we're serving a different purpose. I mean, th these are, these are uh, professionals. A banker in Colorado um, who is the mother of two mm -hmm. and, and who is trying to move up in, in her career who just simply cannot drop what she's doing and go full time to any uh, college who now can sign up for the masters, the online masters in computer science at Georgia Tech, for seven or seven thousand dollars plus, mm -hmm. and and get uh, get get her degree from one of the top computer science programs with the same standards of quality, mm -hmm. with the same you know uh, guidance from the same faculty, and and that simply would not be available without without the online. So those things are not contradictory. Yeah. What we're learning is that they're different vehicles. That, that may serve different, different purposes for different po uh, populations. Mm -hmm. and we're becoming smarter about, about figuring out what to use when and for what. So, so I want to stay, though, on this topic of place on mm -hmm. the first front mm -hmm. for the undergraduate population specifically. And not just the campus, but think about the larger surroundings. Uh, so much of higher ed's value proposition, right, is connected to the physical space in a specific geographic location. Um, Early in the pandemic, Jeff Salingo's not here, so we can pick on him. Uh, and for those that don't know, it's because he has COVID. So yeah. he, he sends his regrets that he couldn't be here. But he wrote this piece uh, that was headlined, uh, A Crisis for Urban Universities with Richard Florida. And like many of the early pandemic predictions, I think, uh, it seems that they were wrong. They basically argued that maybe this great advantage that urban institutions had had prior to the pandemic would not be as significant going forward. Uh, Edward Glazer, of course, the urban economist, uh, has said that cities in face-to-face -face contact have, quote, this essential learning component that is valuable and crucial for workers in particular who are young. So I want to start with you, uh, Angel. Uh, you know, Georgia Tech and Emory seem to be booming. Atlanta seems to be booming. Was the demise uh, of the urban research university, that prediction, just plain wrong? It, it may have been uh, at, at least slightly premature. Um, okay. <laughs> I, I, not only Atlanta is thriving, I would argue that I would argue that Emory would not be what it is if it weren't for Georgia Tech, Georgia State, and because of the full ecosystem. I can definitely tell you 
Georgia Tech would not be what it is without those resources around us. Atlanta, we're, we're very proud. The other day we, we right. toyed with, uh, with Mayor Dickens. Uh, we took a photo with uh, our, our colleague, Brian Blake, president of Georgia State, and the two of us, and the mayor, and we bragged on social media, like how many cities have three R1 institutions in the city, not metro area, state, well, right. cities. Well, we found the, the, the answer to that. There are only three, New York, Philadelphia, and, and Atlanta. And then on top of, the, of those three R1s, you have a, an amazing set of, uh, of uh, HBCUs, mm -hmm. some of the most legendary brands among HBCUs. And we have other private colleges that create a very, an incredibly rich ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Proximity, density of talent has created the foundation. And the reason why Google just opened up a whole tower across the street why Microsoft chose to open their, what's going to be, in their words, their second largest hub, mm -hmm. two miles from, uh, from our campus, and why so many institutions are choosing to come to, uh, to Atlanta. And when they're coming to Atlanta, these are decisions made last week, last month, not, not years ago. They're not going to the suburbs. Mm -hmm. They want to be here. They want to be next to Emory. They want to be next to Georgia State. They want to be next to, uh, to Georgia Tech. So I do think that the demise <laughs> of the city uh, has been slightly exaggerated. Yeah. I'll, I'll give Jeff a break. I think that article <laughs> uh, was written in May of 2020. Yes, correct. And um, I probably could have written a similar article uh, because we just were facing so many unknowns. Mm -hmm. uh, there was so much uncertainty um, about how we as a a nation, uh, we as a state, city, and certainly at universities, uh, we're going to get through this. So um, I do think it was uh, I, I do think it was certainly premature and hopefully wrong. Uh, uh, you know, if you just look at the history of cities, and of course Richard Florida has uh, spent his career doing this, they are incredibly resilient. Mm. Um, you look at Atlanta, Chicago, New York, any any major city, Los Angeles. And what you see in city, these cities now was completely different than 20 years ago. And it's going to be completely different than 20 years. There's just a resiliency that happens when you get uh, so many people living together, uh, generating ideas, generating economy, creating, uh, creating culture uh, that's so important to a city. And uh, Angel and I have talked a lot about this. Uh, cities that have universities like ours, universities like uh, the AUC uh, mm -hmm. here just a, a few miles away, uh, they are going to have a vibrancy uh, that's, you know, that's incredibly special because uh, people want to be at, you know, I believe people want to be at universities that are in these dynamic, vibrant, uh, diverse environments. And I don't think there's any city in the United States like Atlanta uh, with, uh, with all of those, those characteristics. So my organization, Braven, helps students who are first in their families to go to college, often on the Pell Grant or underrepresented minorities in the professional workforce, come out of college and get a strong first job in which they earn an entire dollar instead of 66 cents on the dollar. So Spelman College is a huge partner of ours. Every single Spelman woman is a part of the Braven experience. I'm just curious, when you think about, and Greg, you talked about this a little bit earlier, so maybe we'll start with you. How are you preparing, I would say, in particular, young people who don't come from privileged backgrounds where there's a hidden social capital network um, in the professional workforce for jobs? 
Well, I've uh, spent a lot of my leadership career exactly ad addressing uh, these issues with uh, for first gen students, mm -hmm. first in their family go to college. Uh, uh, partly because I think that is the American dream, mm -hmm. uh, and that is so important to this country. But uh, my wife's uh, first in her family go to college, and I've seen the impact that it had on her and her family and, and her community. So the first step is you have to recruit the students. Mm -hmm. That has to be intentional. Um, at public universities, uh, that's, I think, a very important aspect of it. Um, I've only been at Emory two years, uh, but that was one of the first things I looked at Emory. Are they recruiting first-gen uh, first students, and they mm -hmm. are. Uh, the second is you have to recognize they are, they, these are talented students, um, but they don't have the experience in the social capital mm -hmm. that students who come from families who many have older siblings, parents, aunts, uncles have, have gone to college, maybe even the same college, and so they know the ropes. And so you have to be prepared with all your student support, uh, your services, the faculty have to be ready uh, to be able to understand and how to educate uh, these students because they're going to be different than maybe students that they had seen before. So it's not just enough to admit the student. Mm -hmm. It's do you have the, uh, the, the tools in place for them to use that opportunity to be successful. And then the, the third aspect uh, is you have to recognize you're also educating a family. Mm. Uh, many students, uh, uh, their parents don't really want them to go to college for lots of reasons. Mm -hmm. And so you have to in involve the parents and the family because it really is important for the entire family, not just uh, not just the student. That's great. Angel, what about you? And I'd also love to hear, we're going to wrap this up so we can turn it over to the audience. Um, is there an issue that we haven't talked about in terms of student wellness and belonging? But first, first well, well, first of all, I, I, well, I congratulate you on your organization. If we were doing our job right, you should be out of business. <laughs> and you're not out of business. In fact, we need many people like you doing what you do, which means that we need to do better. Um, and and I, I appreciate, I think, what your organization does, not just to serve students, but to also call people's attention on the fact that there is inequity. Even, even so, I'm a first-generation student, so I, I I've, I've gone through this path myself. You have a huge disadvantage when you don't have that social capital at home, mm -hmm. when you don't have parents whose experiences can, can offer some guidance, who can pick up the phone and, and call a friend or someone who will know. You just have a, a huge disadvantage. When, when a, a low-income student from a rural part of the state makes it to Georgia Tech, mm -hmm. uh, that's already a pretty huge leap. Unfortunately, it shouldn't be, but it is. It I is. mean, for, for, for you to beat the odds and actually make admissions requirement and, and come here. If that student, on top of that, making their way to Georgia Tech, is doing well academically, and somehow we, we fail to position that student on the same you know, level playing field to, to, to start their career, uh, there's something wrong in the system. So. Very importantly, and, and I think that that's something relatively new for us, is that we now have specific programs for first-generation students with that name. And by the way, th these are programs where the students come together, they get a t-shirt, you get a sense of pride. I am a first-generation student. I go, I visit with them and say, I too was a first-generation student. Mm -hmm. That's not, not only is not something to be ashamed of, actually that gives you extra points, you know, 
you don't have all the advantages that others have and you're, you're making. So recognizing that there's a population out there that, that actually starts at a disadvantage. And, and then how do you create community? We, we started a program in the middle of COVID, even recruiting among our alumni mentors in the yeah. community. People you can go grab a cup of coffee and you have to somehow you know, put on your suit and your tie and go and have coffee or lunch with a professional mm -hmm. right there in Tech Square and sit down and talk about what you're doing. It forces you to start having those kinds of conversations, mm -hmm. to, to think about what, what might be possible, make sure that, that students don't miss the boat on their internships, mm -hmm. that they use the, the, the summers well and someone has to be on top of you saying right. you have to get an, an internship. I mean, you, you know this because that's what you do. Right. So I think what's important is that, that colleges like, like ours, that we recognize how hugely important that is and that we do our part. But thank you. Last question from us then, uh, which is around research. I'm curious if during the pandemic, you've seen research that both the topics that you're choosing to research and the way researchers have worked together both within the institution and across institutions, mm -hmm. how that has changed and what the lasting impact might be on health. So, yes, it has had a huge and, and, in my view, very positive impact in the very, very quickly. So what, what happened in, uh, at Georgia Tech, and you know, I, I, I'm sure something similar has happened in other research universities, is very quickly uh, our faculty in mechanical engineering, in biomedical engineering, in policy, in industrial engineering, in physics, in math, all of a sudden everybody's asking, how can I help? Mm -hmm. How can everything that I know, how can my expertise help? We had mechanical engineers at the beginning when, when we needed uh, personal protective equipment, designing, 3D printing, finding manufacturers in, in Georgia that were idle at the time to say, why don't you produce this stuff? Eventually, hundreds of thousands of pieces were produced. Then it was respirators. There was, mm -hmm. Then it was, of course, uh, vaccines. There is a, a project that we actually have done together through our biomedical. When, when you do your, your quick, uh, your, your do at home COVID test, mm. all the tests, the ones that you get from the government, all those tests have been tested, user tested by Emory and, and, and Georgia Tech and, and our colleagues at Children's Hospital because we, we actually have to test everything to make sure they work there. So this, what I think it did, it was help every faculty member think about the impact of the research. So we're right now trying to figure out how to get ourselves organized to, to create even centers for frugal innovation and mm -hmm. rapid innovation, because mm -hmm. it's different than solving longer term um, uh, engineering mm -hmm. problems. Can we, can we create methodologies that when the next crisis hits, we can, we can, all, come, uh, we can all come together? So I think that, it's not that that wasn't there before, but it's, the sense of attention to why and how what I do matters, how I can be part of the solution. I mean, our testing, all of our testing, uh, COVID testing was done in-house at Georgia Tech. We had computer science folks, we had GTRI, we had everybody come together to make it happen. So I hope we don't lose that. Honestly, uh, of all the pain that the, the, the pandemic caused, I hope that that sense of, of purpose, of meaning, of how essential uh, science is, when things get really, really scary, all we had to rely on was science. Hopefully all that, that's a lesson also for society that may have looked at science with a little bit of skepticism before, before COVID. So I'm hoping that some of those lessons are, are there to stay.
Greg, final word. Well, um, this uh, this pandemic was, um, maybe this is not the right way to say it, was right in Emory's wheelhouse. Uh, so infectious diseases uh -huh. uh, is one of the strengths in our uh, health sciences, our public health, and certainly in Emory Healthcare, our clinical care system uh, huh. here in Atlanta. Um, a number of years ago when Ebola was uh, mm -hmm. affecting Africa, um, Emory, uh, it was the first uh, hospital in the United States to treat an Ebola patient. And there was a lot of fear, I wasn't here at the time, but a lot of, I understand, a lot of fear of bringing an Ebola patient into Emory, uh, into Atlanta, mm -hmm. into an Emory hospital. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, as a result of that, uh, created a whole special infectious diseases unit about how to handle infectious diseases. Uh, very involved uh, with the the, uh, the SARS and the uh, predecessors to COVID, uh, COVID-19. And so uh, Emory was very well positioned uh, uh, across all aspects, uh, such as vaccines. And our Emory Vaccine Center had done some of the foundational research on uh, mRNA. Uh, and it's a great research story uh, that mRNA research has been going on uh, for 20 years. Hmm. People thought it was a waste of time. Mm -hmm. uh, it would have no application. It could never be used. Uh, but it was uh, it was the right technology, the right time with some actually bioengineers figuring out how to get RNA into into the bloodstream uh, before it decomposed. And of course, you know it it, it helps get us through uh, the pandemic. Um, we're very proud in in terms of uh, the clinical testing of the vaccines. Remember back to uh, late 2020, early 2021, nobody knew if these vaccines would work. Uh, there were great concerns about uh, uh, about uh, the impact on African Americans, mm -hmm. on Hispanic communities. So, uh, Emory Healthcare and our partnership with uh, Grady Memorial Hospital mm -hmm. had the largest, most diverse trials uh, for uh, for the mRNA vaccines right. uh, to be able to get the data, the real data, uh, to understand uh, how these vaccines work in a wide uh, uh, mm -hmm. you know, wide number of patients. Uh, and then through innovation that was taking place in real time, uh, our hospital, Emory Hospitals, um, through a meta-study that we, we didn't do, uh, had the highest uh, survival rates of uh, COVID patients on ventilation. Wow. And so 93, 94%, and it was the highest of uh, hospitals in, the, in this country and around, around the world. And that was all real-time mm -hmm. innovation, experimentation, uh, working under very, very stressful conditions with great hazards uh, to uh, to our to physicians, to nurses, uh, to the medical uh, medical personnel. Um, so we're really proud of how we responded, and that's not even getting into the public health issues. And how do we address uh, skepticism and mistrust of science? What is science? What does that mean? How do you translate that into policy? How do you make decisions? How do you communicate it? And these are all active issues that we, we need to be working on. Perfect. Greg Angel, thank you very much. Thank you. And with that, we'll take a brief break and be right back on Future You. Salesforce.org is the exclusive sponsor of the Future You Campus Tour. Salesforce.org is proud to partner with institutions like yours to build a better future for all. We believe creating a technology-enabled, personalized, and continuous experience throughout the learner lifecycle is so critical to driving student and institution success from anywhere. 
Learn more at salesforce.org slash higher ed. Welcome back to Future You. So as we come back from break, we're super excited about our four panelists. I want to welcome Dean Charles Isbell, College of Computing at Georgia Tech, Dr. Joy Harris, Director of Engineering for Social Innovation Center and faculty member here at Georgia Tech, and also Dr. Eric Weeks, the Director of the Center for Faculty Development and Excellence and Associate Vice Provost for Faculty Affairs at Emory University, and Razan Roberts, Senior Director, Strategic Engagement and Communications at Salesforce. I want to start with the key topic that we were just discussing with the presidents around student wellness and well-being. Of course, each of you has seen this through your own lens on your campuses or as an employer. So Charles, I'd love to start with you. We'd love to know what you think of this whole notion of belonging and purpose and student well-being. Well, of course, it's, it's central to, to what it means to be a part of the university. But I think the, the crucial thing here that we always have to keep in mind is that you're building a community. So when you talk about student wellness, you're not just talking about the student, you're talking about staff wellness, you're talking about faculty wellness, you're talking about building a community where everyone feels that they're a part of it and they're walking in the same direction, whether they're going to be here for four or five years as an undergrad, they're going to be here for one or two years as a master's student, or whether they're going to be here for a 20 or 30 year career as a, as a staff member, faculty member. And that crucial notion of, of community really matters. Earlier, we were talking about a lot of things, um, and we went back and forth to what it would mean to be online, for example. Mm -hmm. Well, we have somewhere between 17 and 19,000 students who are online for our various graduate programs from all walks of life, all 24 time zones, uh, all over the world with very different backgrounds and very mm -hmm. different experiences, and yet they build a sense of community. And what we do to help them do that is they find each other, is we try to find ways of supporting that community that they're finding for themselves. The goal is not for the university to be the mom and the dad that makes certain that um, every moment of your life is safe. That's mm -hmm. not what wellness is. It's to provide an environment and a community where you can be your best, where you can, um, because, and I'll help put it, practice uh -huh. what it means to be resilient, practice what it means to be a part of a community, and that involves everyone um, having a stake. Mm -hmm. stake in that. So for me, the question of belonging is crucial. The, the question of mental health is crucial. But really, that's another way of talking about building a community where everyone feels that they are a part of it and have a voice. That's great. Eric, what about you from your seat at Emory? Uh, so I'm a faculty member, and I'm also doing faculty development in my administrative role. And so I'm thinking of this from a faculty point of view. I think the pandemic has taught faculty to be more compassionate, to be more flexible, to be more thoughtful about the different experiences students are having and how they can try and make their course less stressful without lowering the rigor. And so I hope that we carry that forward and that helps with student belonging. Uh, the other piece is that we're trying to tell faculty that if a student comes to you and mm -hmm. says that they're experiencing mental distress, that your first reaction does not need to be, you need to go talk to the counseling center, I can't talk to you. But that there's a room for faculty to lean in and be compassionate and say, tell me more. Is, is my class something that is stressing you or is it something more general? And that often if a student's coming to a faculty member, it's because they want to talk to you because they see you as somebody they can talk with. 
And if the faculty are more willing to listen and mm -hmm. be a human in the, in the moment, I think that really helps student belongingness and, and mental health. Joy, we'd love to hear from your seat as a professor and a professor, at least in my opinion, of like hard subject matter. <laughs> what I see with student well-being is that our students, I teach a first year seminar, for mm -hmm. example, and they, they come into the first year seminar really assuming that they're supposed to be stressed. Mm. They assume that if they are not stressed out, if they're not worried, if, if they're not on the verge of a breakdown, really? that something is wrong. Huh. I've had students to tell me that. And so I feel like our goal is really to help them understand you're building tools for life. Mm -hmm. as, as has been said, college doesn't end and then life begins. Mm -hmm. You're at this point developing a lifestyle for mental health, for mm -hmm. mental well-being. And you should not go through life feeling like if I'm not on the verge of a mental breakdown, mm -hmm. then something is wrong. Yeah. And so helping our students to navigate that, I feel like as faculty members, that's that's the first step. Yeah. Rosin, so I'm going to change this up slightly for you because you're seeing students often on the back end of, of school as an employer, and you have a bird's eye view across the country of what schools are doing, um, and you're supporting these efforts through the technology that comes clearly into the schools, but also what happens after. What are you hearing from um, today in terms of what students could learn as they think about the future? Um, what we really are seeing on the macro level is that those institutions that are providing that what I'm going to call the true culture of care mm -hmm. are seeing better results on, on that front. Mm -hmm. And I want to step back and then I want to talk about what I mean by a true culture of care. On the macro level, anxiety, student anxiety has always been an issue. The pandemic obviously brought it to the forefront. Mm -hmm. And I want to kind of stress on how massive this issue is. At Salesforce, we did a survey um, just towards the end of 2020. We surveyed 1,100 students and 1,000 faculty members and staff. 76% of students said this is top number one, top of mind for them. Wow. And 73% of staff said the same thing, hmm. right? Now, it's important to talk about that, like this mental health thing or mm -hmm. well-being manifests in itself in many ways. It's the death in the family, and that's what we gathered from the survey. It's the financial issues. It's, it's even loneliness mm -hmm. or, or even just anxiety, to your point, around the course they're attending or something like mm -hmm. that. Now, what it all boils down to is issues with retention, issues with graduation, issues with the student life all up. Right. The good news is that presidents of universities have that issue as top of mind. And an American Council on Education, their latest survey said 72% of presidents mm -hmm. have that issue as their number one issue. Now, what are we seeing, this true culture of care that is making a difference? What mm -hmm. are these? There's few things on my mind that I want to list kind of that we're seeing that are making an impact. Mm -hmm. First one is around awareness and stigma. Mm -hmm. Peer-to-peer -peer programs, peer-to-peer -peer support, students telling each other that it's actually okay not to feel well. It's mm -hmm. actually okay to go and seek help. It isn't any different from breaking a leg or breaking an arm. Right. You go to the hospital. It isn't any different than that. That's making a difference. The other point that's making a difference is around scale, around the design of the well-being, mm -hmm. integrating it within the curriculum. Resiliency skills, we talked about resiliency. Resiliency skills, stress management skills. So they actually need to, 
the, so students can actually learn how to deal with the basics by themselves mm -hmm. before they go and seek help. Mm -hmm. Third issue is digital first advising, career advising, financial advising, mm -hmm. well-being advising, academic advising, make it easier. I think someone talked about the adult learner. They don't mm -hmm. have time. I think President Cabrera did mm -hmm. that. They don't have time. They're not going to go to campus to schedule an appointment. Make it easier for them. Have advising come to them wherever they are. That third issue is making a difference. Fourth issue is well-being and belonging. Mm -hmm. Personalizing every communication that goes to them. Mm -hmm. They're used to that, particularly Gen Z. Yeah. They're used to Netflix giving them recommendations <laughs> right. and Amazon giving them recommendations. And they expect a similar thing. They expect their institution to know them, mm -hmm. to know their interests, to know their hobbies, and to know a lot more about them. So I want to get into the other topic that we talked about with the presidents uh, around this pendulum around urbanization and, and then not, and then again, perhaps uh, in college campuses, um, and the sense that you know there was mounting evidence before the pandemic, certainly, that students were increasingly valuing being on an urban campus for their college choice. Uh, it was beneficial for their futures, for building social capital, uh, for the schools themselves. Um, the pandemic hit. A lot of us thought, not just Jeff, uh, <laughs> that this might change. Uh, and it seems to be swinging back perhaps the other way now uh, where it's an environment. So I'm curious your takes on that uh, for, you know, will it be a significant advantage for college campuses going forward or not? Charles, what's your view of this and in particular with the urban element of, of whether that is a difference maker still for campuses or is it not as big a deal as maybe some of us are making it out to be? Oh, I, I think it's a huge deal. I think that if we were concerned about universities and urban areas sort of falling off the map, then we, what we'd be really worried about is cities falling off the map, right? Mm -hmm. People want to be in cities for reasons. Um, the sort of scale that you get from being there is, is sort of a, a central attractor of cities, right? That almost by definition. But if you're in a university, I think the crucial thing, and you've heard it in both of the answers so far, is community. It's being a part of the larger community. And what does it mean to do community engagement? We can think about it in a narrow sense of, I've got a program with the West Side, or I'm working with this particular company over here. But engagement really means being a part of the larger community that is the city and the surrounding areas. So for example, it is important, at least to me, that Georgia Tech is not just an urban campus. Mm -hmm. I was an undergrad here, and the first thing they told us was, if you had a one megaton nuclear bomb, and you wanted to do the maximum damage to the city of Atlanta, you would drop it on the east side of Atlanta. Welcome to Georgia Tech. Uh, so, you know, uh, but that meant that a large part of what Georgia Tech was, was being in the center of the city. Mm -hmm. And as time has gone on, and we've crossed over the highway, and been a part of Midtown, and been a part of our, our neighbors on the West End, which is where I grew up, uh, you find that you are integrated and woven into the city. That's what it means to be engaged. Georgia Tech, Emory, any university that is worth its salt inside of a city does not see itself as just an economic engine. Mm -hmm. It sees itself as a citizen engaged with all of the people and bringing them on. I think a thing that you've heard again and again, along with community, is a notion of access. So whether people are part, are, are students here, whether they're staff or whether they're faculty, whether they're employed here, they should still feel that this is a space that they can be a part of. When you look out that window over there, well, you see trees because we're the world's largest urban forest. But if we could move the trees out the way, you would see Google, you would see NCR, you would see Coca-Cola, you would see um, Home Depot, you would see Microsoft. What we ask them to do when they engage with us is not just to be an economic engine, not just to think about recruiting, but to be a part of the conversations of what it means to be a part of the city. So I think that so long as universities are seeing themselves as being engaged in a conversation, 
with all of the people, not just on campus, but all of the entities and constituencies outside campus, this will always be a place where people will want to be because where else are you going to get that kind of interaction and that kind of, if I dare say it, sense of belonging? Mm. And one quick addition, what, what Charles just said and what Joy said also, I think this ties back to the first question, which is what you just ended with. This is also part of student belongingness. All these advantages of an urban environment are advantages that can lead to senses of purpose and students' senses of well-being and senses of belonging to something larger than themselves. Razan, what's your take on this as you look across? Well, I wonder if you remove the trees, you'd see the Salesforce Tower too, or not. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if you the chance. <laughs> but, you know, I think about this question in two different ways. Um, the first one is us, obviously, Salesforce, as employers, right? And you know, if you think about us, we're consumers of the higher education product and the higher education product, the future leader, the future critical thinker, the future, you know, student with the right skills to join a company and be productive. At Salesforce in specific, we have through IDC research, by 2026, the Salesforce ecosystem, meaning us, our partners and our customers are going to generate 9.3 million job opportunities by 2026 without universities like Georgia Tech, like Emory, like many others here, I mean, we, we will never be able to fill the pipe of the talent that we need to fill the ecosystem. So that's one. If you think about our towers, and we talked about Atlanta here, they're all in urban areas where there are university campuses. New York, San Francisco, Sydney, London, and I'm probably blanking on a lot more. They're all in urban areas. One of the reasons isn't because Google and Microsoft is here. It's because universities and colleges are here and because talent is here. So that's one area to think about. it. The other area from my point of view is that there's kind of value from the campus, at least the way we're seeing it on the macro level. Mm. There's value on the campus for, for the student who is getting out of high school because they need the academic rigor in addition to that, they need the coming of age experiences in a more friendly way, which is the campus, the urban campus. While the adult learner, and I know COVID mm -hmm. disrupted so many lives, millions of people, those might need something different. Those might need the online program. Those might need the quick skills that they can earn, the stackable credentials, the competency-based, all of these things. But I think there's huge value in the urban campuses for particularly that student who is mm -hmm. through coming of age experiences in life. Mm -hmm. So last topic, Joy, I'm just so curious to know to what Rosin was just saying about students. Were you able to keep students engaged in research while um, the pandemic went on? And if so, what have you learned uh, for the future of keeping them engaged in research? Yes, our students were highly engaged in research. They just made me proud. I learned that our students are so resilient and, and creative. Mm. Many of them would have preferred, if they could, to have access to our maker spaces and to the equipment on campus that allows them to do different things. But so many of them went into their own garages. Mm. And, and built things. They were able to convince their families to buy rudimentary things so that they could do rapid prototyping. A lot of students also did quite a bit uh, virtually online mm -hmm. just using their computer science skills. I, I had a team of students who built during the pandemic a job board for, for people who have felony convictions mm. because they learned, unfortunately, uh, 
felony convictions are disproportionately given mm -hmm. to particular members of a community. Mm -hmm. And so they found a way to sift jobs based on either they don't ask or they don't care if you have a felony conviction. And, and we're speaking lucrative mm -hmm. jobs. And we were able to give that to a partner organization who is close. We gave the, the software to Georgia Works, which is a community organization, mm -hmm. again, who's local right here. And so just having that experience and then being able to participate in that research and many, many, many others, yeah. our students are able to create the future. That's amazing. And that's what I, I always tell them when they're considering, especially at the undergraduate level, mm -hmm. You get to see where the future is going because you're creating it when you're going into the lab and doing this research. It's amazing. Charles, same question for you. Oh, I, I, I found that the students have been they're not just longing for research, but they, they've continued to, to engage. And, and I think that's something that's very special about being in, in an R1, right? So mm -hmm. every university has its mission. Um, all of those missions are important. You serve the people you serve. But one of the wonderful things about being at a place like this, where you have access to research, is that it's an opportunity to do something and to learn to think in a particular way. When mm -hmm. I was an undergrad here, oh, I, can't, I can't say how long ago it was. It keeps cutting out. But a long time ago. Um, you know, there weren't as many opportunities. But right. over the last couple of decades or so, uh, we see more and more of that. And I think that that's really important. Mm -hmm. And I think the students get that it's important. But I don't know that they necessarily understand um, because they, I think they see it somewhat transactional. I get to do something cool. I'll get a nice recommendation. Mm -hmm. I'll have a better chance to get a job. But what you try to teach people, and, and I think what they eventually grok, uh, is that, you know, their, their tool sets, their skill sets, their mm -hmm. mindsets. And research is a mindset. It's a way of thinking. It's a way of engaging with the world, whether you're doing it as a computationalist or you're thinking about it as an engineer or as a scientist or, or through the humanities. It, it's a way of engaging and, and a way of thinking. And the students like that. That's why they want to be here. And it's the thing that they understand will give them a skill. Because, you know, 10 years from now, whatever it is we teach them, <laughs> right. it's going to be obsolete. We'll be moving on to something right. else. Podcasts didn't even exist <laughs> right. 15 seconds ago, right? <laughs> um, and I don't know what's going to be coming next. But those things are going to come next, and being able to react, be able to react to them is going to matter. So we we have kept it at least uppermost um, at our university mm -hmm. to keep those opportunities around for the students, and they have they have eaten it up like bacon. That's great, Eric. Uh, since you asked about the pandemic, I'm going to give you an anecdote. Uh, I'm a physics professor, and I had a student who spent her first year of undergraduate in China where she's from, and she was not able to come to the United States. And she reached out to me saying she desperately wanted to do research, could I do anything with her, and I gave her a computational project. Hmm. And then it was fall 2021, and she could finally come to Atlanta. And it was great to meet her in person, and she immediately informed me that the computational project was done, she wanted to be <laughs> in the lab, hands-on, and so we transitioned her to an experimental project, Amazing. which was great. But it was great to see such you know, excitement about getting engaged with research, no matter the circumstances, that she was you know, in the middle of the night in China having a Zoom call with me to go over her simulation. Right. Um, I think more broadly, I, I love that students see that research is something that they can do. Even if, or maybe they're not doing it because they're busy doing something else, but they see that their friends are doing it. Mm -hmm. that, it that knowledge is being created on campuses. It's not just something that was done you know, a century ago by Einstein and then they can't do it, mm -hmm. but it's being done by by undergraduates or graduate students, by faculty, um, and whether it's in the sciences or in humanities, that, that there is creation of knowledge that they can be part of. Um, and so whether or not they go on to do that or not, they've seen that that is something that is done by, by regular people and that it is a, it, it's exciting. Mm -hmm. So I like that they get that exposure independent of where they go off afterwards. That's awesome.
That's a great uh, place to end it. Any questions uh, before Ami and I uh, wrap up here? So in the back, we have a question there. Hello, I'm Bonnie Ferry. So I have a, a question about where you see the future of education in terms of other types of educational experiences beyond a typical classroom type of experience. Can I pick on you, Charles? Yeah. Sure. So I, I think that, uh, so thank you for the question, Bonnie. I, I, I think that, um, well, the future is bright, right? Mm -hmm. That I think the important thing is <laughs> we tend to think about the classroom as the default and that we have to figure out how to duplicate it. The lecture is the way that you communicate. Uh, and so we have to figure out how to duplicate it. The right way to think about this is to remember that the goal is to have educational experiences, to learn something, to figure out the mindset of research, to understand what it means to be a part of a community and communicate. Those are the central questions. And then the rest is about delivery and making that more likely. So I think as we invert that question, that we're not starting from the right answer, which is a structure, and then duplicating it in some new technological platform, but rather are making the education and the experience central, then we can step away and decouple it, disaggregate, as we would say if this were the 2000s, um, from uh, the mechanisms of delivery, we're going to see more and more options. So we're going to see more things like the online Masters of Sciences that we do here. We're going to see more opportunities for distance learning and communities being created together, uh, at, even at the high school level. We're going to see that for certainly people who've gone out in the world and they've, they've graduated and they want to come back and get a certificate or take a class or just part of a class or just a little bit here or there. We're going to see more and more of those things. And I think what's going to happen for us as universities is we're going to have to figure out Two things. One, how to deliver on that promise, right? How to actually make these things available. And two, in such a way that it still reflects whatever our values are. That this is not a secondary thing that we are doing because you know it'll add 1% to our bottom line or because it's a thing that's demanded of us by the state legislatures, but rather that it is central to our mission. A thing that we've been circling around in all of these conversations, I think, even going back to the, the earlier questions, is around access and what our obligation is towards making education available to more people. And I think these kinds of mechanisms, the ones that you're hinting at about these things beyond the classroom and standard degrees are really a large part of the answer to the question of access. How do we bring more people into the conversation and allow them to be educated as they go through the, the arc of their careers? And we're just gonna have to be creative about it and creative about it in a way that at the end of the day, they'll still say, go Jackets, and, and other universities, I'm sure, but you know what? Terrific. Uh, first, join me in uh, thanking our panelists. And as we uh, wrap up here, host prerogative, first yeah. join me in thanking Ami uh, for doing a great job guest co-hosting. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You get to go first. Reflections on the yeah. conversation that we've had today. Here are my top three reflections. One, I just think this pandemic has taught us that we are all human and humans need each other. I'm a mom of three children, also a 14-year-old. A number of us have 14-year-olds. And I'm like, from a maturation standpoint, as a former sixth grade teacher turned talent nerd, actually being able to mature into the world of, of life, the pathway onto campuses is a very important part of the maturation process. The second part, I really do hope that we reflect on, and it got talked about in the president's panel, is honestly this million young people who'd made the decision not to come into higher ed, and who are they? Because I do think this prevailing notion of oh, all of a sudden online created equity when actually I think we saw deep inequities, sure, not only in the world of like the lack of technology in order to get online, et cetera, 
but actually the lack of access to campuses like these incredible two at Georgia State and Emory for that group of young people and what can we do. And then finally, um, my big reflection is around the importance of faculty and the folks on campuses who are creating these amazing experiences for students, but also what we need to do to make sure that they are nourished and fed as well because that just feeds right back into the system. How about you, Michael? Those are good. Um, so I want to do three as well, but I'm like leaning toward four. So I'm just going to go for it. I have my three C's and then one R, which is uh, the first is a uh, culture of care. Um, I, I really take that uh, seriously uh, that, that stems out of there and, and really the full wraparound uh, we need. Um, but second, community and not just community, but building it intentionally. And technology can do that. In person, campuses can do that. But we just need to be intentional about it. Um, and I like that line, Charles, you used, that the goal is not to be mom or dad, but to build the resiliency and, and, and the sense of agency, really, in, in, in the young people uh, themselves. Uh, and then third, that uh, the notion of being citizens uh, in, in, in a city, in a community, uh, for the individuals, for the campuses, for the companies around, it's not just about the economic engine, uh, I think is an important piece of this. And, and then the last one I had was just the relevance of research right now. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's been borne out clearly uh, over the pandemic for people who've been observing and the important role it's played for society. Uh, but I hope more students are able to appreciate earlier, frankly, uh, the opportunities at places like Georgia Tech and like Emory uh, to engage in serious research. And my only reflection is sometimes I think that falls on your social capital coming oh, yeah. in as well, knowing whether it's there or not and being mm -hmm. exposed to it. And so how do we have that intentionality there as well? So I think we'll leave it there, but I just want to thank you all in the audience uh, for joining us on Future You today. Appreciate it. Uh, and a thank you to our sponsor, uh, salesforce.org, of course, uh, without uh, which we could not do the campus tour that we've been on. Uh, and thank you to our panelists, presidents, uh, and thank you to our host, Georgia Tech, for opening up this beautiful facility uh, that is nourishing our planet at a time where we need it. So just thank you to you all. Uh, we'll be back next time on Future You.